You're listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. The title of the sermon is Death's Demise. Death's Demise. And uh, we're going to be looking at one of Jesus' most famous miracles, the raising of Lazarus. So let's look at our text. John chapter 11. We're going to look at a piece of it at least. John chapter 11, verses 38 through 44. And uh, Jesus' friend Lazarus has passed away. He's been dead for four days. Let's look at what happens. Then Jesus, again greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, already there is a stench because he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus looked upward and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I have said this for the sake of the crowd standing here so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priest and the Pharisees called a meeting of the council and said, What are we to do? This man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and destroy both our holy place and our nation. Now, Lord, I just pause, we pause just before we get into this. And we just pledge the next few moments to you. I'm hungry for more of Jesus. We're hungry for more of Jesus. And there's something that you can do that no one else can do. There's power that comes from your word that comes from nowhere else. That heals, saves, redeems, restores, and makes right. And I just pray that the power of your word by your spirit would be planted deep within the soil of our hearts today. We invite you to speak to the very core of our being. We receive whatever you have for us today. And may your word bear fruit for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. There are four writings in the New Testament that give us an account of Jesus' life. You can call them ancient biographies of Jesus' life. We often call them the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And the first three of them, Mark, Matthew, and Luke, and I say it in that order because that's likely the order they were written in, Mark, Matthew, and Luke 
all belong in a category together. We call them the synoptic gospels. It just means they're very similar. They follow a similar pattern, a similar outline, and they share a lot of similar content. Each, even though each one of them is distinct, they all have content distinct to their own writing that's not shared, but they do share a lot of the same content, a lot of the same teaching, a lot of the same miracles and, and happenings are also recorded in each of them, the Synoptic Gospels. And they all kind of have their own emphasis and their own, their own slant that they want to emphasize about Jesus. They're not exactly the same in terms of what they want to emphasize to us. They're looking at, at Jesus' life from different perspectives that they're trying to communicate to us about. So we need all of them. It, w- it wouldn't be enough to just have one of them. We need all, all four of the Gospels. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke are grouped together because they follow a similar pattern. It's the fourth Gospel, the Gospel of John, that kind of stands alone by itself in its own category. Uh, John is writing much later than the other three, probably about 20 years later. And by the time John is sitting down to write his account of Jesus' life, these other three writings have already been circulating, and John's aware of that. And so when John sits down to write his accounts, he says to himself, I don't need to replicate what they did. I don't necessarily need to tell the same stories and include all of the same teaching. That's been recorded for us for posterity. So what I want to do is I want to craft an account of Jesus' life to emphasize something that I think is really important. And I want to tell a story about Jesus that hasn't been told precisely in this way. And so John's gospel includes content that we don't find in the other three. Likewise, Matthew, Mark, and Luke include a lot of content that's not included in John. His his is a very distinct gospel. And one of the many, 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 many interesting things about the gospel of John is that, believe it or not, out of the four, the one gospel that tells the least amount of miracle stories is John. In, in the 21 chapters of the Gospel of John, he only records seven miracles. He's very economical with the miracles that he tells us about. And he crafts it in a very intentional way. He actually doesn't refer to them as miracles. He calls them signs. Because these miracles aren't just like, it's not John just telling us, hey, here's a bunch of cool things Jesus did. These miracles, he's telling each of them, each of the seven, because they are signs, like, like, like highway signs, they're pointing us to something. They're pointing us to something that is true about Jesus and his kingdom. Well, this evening, we're going to look at the seventh and the final sign of the gospel, according to John. And it's the raising of Lazarus from the dead. I want to show you a couple graphics on the screen just to whet your appetite before we jump into this. Uh, what you're looking at on the screen, this is what is called the tomb of Lazarus in the ancient city of, Beth- of uh, Bethany. It's not called Bethany anymore. But it's right there, the tomb of Lazarus. This has been called the tomb of Lazarus for 1,700 years. Now, is it the tomb of Lazarus? Probably not. We don't know, but it's possible. What we do know is archaeologists have established that this 
tomb is part of a cemetery that existed in the first century in Bethany uh, during the time of Jesus. So if this is not the tomb of Lazarus, number one, it looks very similar to the tomb of Lazarus. And number two, it's probably not very far from the tomb of Lazarus. So I, I just highlight this. Uh, we didn't go there on our recent Israel trip, but I just like to plug some Israel sites every so often in these sermons. It just adds some, uh, you, you get to visualize it a little bit. And maybe one day you'll get to go to the tomb of Lazarus yourself. I've been to the tomb of Lazarus. I've walked inside and I came out of the grave. One more graphic, and that's, I, I want to show you where Bethany is on, on the map. You'll see how close it was to Jerusalem. Jerusalem on the left-hand side of the screen, you see the Temple Mount, and you see the geographical boundaries of the ancient city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem back then in Jesus' day, it was not a, a massive, urban, sprawling city. It was a very tight, small, geographical, walled location. And Bethany was two miles distance. You see that green line from Bethany to the temple? That would have been the path Jesus would have taken on his triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, which we're going to focus on next week on Palm Sunday. So those of you that were pilgrims with me in Israel three months ago, we didn't walk that whole green line, but probably about half of it. We started at the top of the Mount of Olives, and just like Jesus, we walked down the Mount of Olives and then Jesus would have walked across the Kidron Valley up towards the Temple Mount. So I want you to see the proximity there. Bethany was, was not just like a, a tiny village out in the middle of nowhere in the boondocks. It was like a suburb of Jerusalem. Very important for this sermon. So now that we have our bearings, let's look at the story. There in the town of Bethany was a family of two sisters and a brother, Mary, Martha, Lazarus. We don't know a whole lot about them. But one thing we can accurately say about them is that they were a family of financial means. Uh, there are indications in what the Gospels say about Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, this family, that indicates they were wealthy. And evidently, they went way back with Jesus. Jesus counted Mary, Martha, and Lazarus among his closest friends. I don't know how they originally got acquainted, but they were very close friends. Now remember, Jesus did not live around Jerusalem in the southern part of Israel. He lived way up in the northern part of Israel, what we call Galilee. But Jesus would often frequently come down to Jerusalem or actually go up to Jerusalem elevation-wise. No matter where you are in the world, if you're going to Jerusalem, you're going up. Um, and when he would come to Jerusalem, he would come for the different feasts and the different Jewish festivals. And whenever Jesus would come to Jerusalem, he would often stay at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. They were very close friends. You know, Jesus had his 12 apostles and he poured into them. They were his friends in, in one sense, but they were also his students, his pupils, his apprentices. But outside of the 12, Jesus also had a lot of different friends and he would hang out with his friends. He would spend time with his friends. So let me just make this point. It's a simple point, but hanging out with your friends is a spiritual activity. Jesus has sanctified hanging out. He has sanctified hanging out with your friends. It's every bit as, of a, and I, I'm serious, it's every bit as holy as kneeling down in prayer. Friendship is a holy activity. Well, on this particular um, 
on the first day of this event, I should say, Jesus is not in Bethany. He's several days travel away from Bethany. But his good friend Lazarus has fallen quite sick, very sick, deathly ill. And so Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sisters, they send a messenger. They send word. Go out and find Jesus and tell Jesus what's happened to our brother. And the reason they want Jesus to hear the news is because they know Jesus can work phenomenal, phenomenal miracles. We just saw two chapters earlier, John 9, last weekend. Jesus heals a man blind from birth, which, which is unprecedented. No one had ever heard of that before. And he's opened the eyes of a man born blind. So Mary and Martha surmise that if he can do that, he can heal our brother. And so they're hoping that Jesus will get word expediently, and then he'll, they're expecting he'll just stop what he's doing, zoom by to Bethany, and heal their, their sick brother. Instead, Jesus gets the news, and he doesn't do anything. He actually lingers around where he is for two days. What does he do during those two days? We don't know. What we do know is he's not on the way to Bethany to heal Lazarus. He stays where he is for two days. And remember, in the Gospel of John, Jesus never does or says anything that he doesn't see the Father saying and doing. Everything Jesus says and does is what the Father tells him to say and do. So there's some purpose to this. This is not just Jesus not caring. There's a purpose to this because I believe what God wants to do is not just heal Lazarus of sickness. He wants to raise Lazarus from the dead. This is a sign pointing to something. So Jesus stays put for two days. And during that two-day period, the unthinkable happens and Lazarus passes away. And at some point, Jesus evidently has knowledge of this. So he tells his disciples, all right, guys, let's pack it up. We're going down to Bethany. My friend Lazarus has fallen asleep and I must awaken him. And his disciples are confused and they misunderstand what he's saying. They say, Jesus, if he's fallen asleep, he'll be fine. Nobody, you're, you're, I mean, you're, you're like two, three days away travel. You don't have to go to wake up. Somebody else will wake him up. He'll wake up on his own. But they don't realize Jesus is speaking an idiom. And it was a common Jewish um, euphemism for death to say this person has fallen asleep. It's very, very much like we would say this person passed away. Well, the ancient Jews would say they've fallen asleep. Ordinarily, the, the disciples would have picked up on this. What throws them off is the part where Jesus says, and I must go awaken him. They have no imagination or conception in their minds that Jesus is about to raise this man from the dead. So it throws them off and they think they take him literally, they misunderstand him. But what the disciples are preoccupied with and focused on is the part where Jesus says, let's go back down to Bethany. Because Bethany is near what? Jerusalem. And the last time they were in Jerusalem, John chapter 9, what happens? Jesus just about gets himself stoned to death. And the disciples are, that's a death trap. Jerusalem, that whole area, it's a hotbed of opposition. It's like, a, a, it's like we're, it's we're going to commit suicide if we go to Jerusalem. If we go down to Bethany, it's too close. And Jesus does not relent. He does not, he just persists and he will not give up. And, and, and he takes those 12 guys and they move down to Bethany. And Thomas is like, we might as well go die with them. That's their attitude. It's a suicide mission to these guys. Well, they go down to Bethany, and um, 
just as Jesus is making it into the outskirts of the village, Martha, Lazarus' sister, she sees Jesus on the horizon. She's been looking for him. And she runs out to him. And she's ready to express her disappointment with Jesus. She's disappointed with Jesus. She says, Jesus, I sent word to you days ago that my brother was sick. He was near death. And you did not come. You stayed where you were for two days. And now my brother is dead. If you had only been here, if you had only come, my brother would not be dead right now. I got to be honest with you. I got to tell you, I don't, I don't blame Martha at all for feeling the way she's feeling. I think given the information she has, knowing the variables that she has, I think it's a perfectly natural and legitimate way to feel. And I think we need to show Martha a little bit of grace here. You know, we've had 21 centuries to work with this story. Many of us in this room, we've heard the raising of Lazarus. We've heard this story many, many times. I grew up as a little boy in Sunday school uh, looking at the flannel graph, uh, graph uh, figures of Lazarus being raised, risen from the dead. I, I grew up with this story. I know this story. I know what's going to happen. It's ingrained in my bones. And it's, it's our task to step out of our historical distance and put ourselves in the sandals of the person this is happening to. You understand as uh, Martha is talking with Jesus here, it's not like Martha in the middle of it's going to say, wait a second, this is John chapter 11. <laughs> John chapter 11 is happening to her in real time. And all Martha know, knows is, my brother was sick, I sent a messenger to Jesus, and he didn't come, and now he's dead. Jesus responds and tells her, Lazarus will rise again. And Martha, just like the disciples a moment ago, she misunderstands Jesus. She's hearing him say something different. And Martha says, yeah, I know. I know that at the end of time, there's going to be this great final resurrection. All of the righteous dead will be raised and I know my brother Lazarus, he's going to be raised with him. Someday, way off into the future, my brother will be raised. I understand that, Jesus. And it's right here where we get the first glimpse into the meaning of this sign. Jesus looks at Martha and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. What's happening here? Well, Martha believed just like we do that there's going to be a final resurrection someday. That at the end of this present age, there will be a final resurrection. And as Christians, we would say it this way, all of those who are dead in Christ will be physically resurrected from the grave. That's going to happen. That's going to happen in the future. And that Christian belief is grounded in a much earlier Jewish belief in resurrection. And Martha believes that one day, yes, I understand at the end of time, my brother's going to be risen to life. And what Jesus is telling her is, Martha, resurrection is not just some doctrine about an event that's going to happen way off in the future. Resurrection is a real and live person who is speaking to you right now. 
I am embodying everything that is resurrection in life. So in order to experience this future resurrection, you can now come in contact with resurrection in human bodily form. It's an amazing, profound statement. And I'm pretty sure Martha had a hard time wrapping her, her mind around what Jesus is telling her. I'm pretty sure she did not fully comprehend everything that Jesus just said to her. But here's the key. She responds to the light that she has. Faith rises up in her heart, and though her understanding is limited, she believes. And that's, that's our Christian story. There's so much about Christianity we cannot explain. But we always confess more than we can explain. I can't sit here and teach you how the Trinity works. I can't teach you how the incarnation works. How God, God sends his son into the world who is 100% divine and 100% human being in one person. It's a mystery. And Martha can't explain it. She can't even understand it. But she believes it and she confesses it. I believe the scene closes with Martha and Jesus and the disciples. They, they leave the outskirts and they begin walking into the town of Bethlehem, or excuse me, Bethany. And it's here where we find Mary. And Mary is in deep sorrow and deep grief. She's, it says she's surrounded by her friends. And she's weeping. She's in sorrow. You know, if you've ever been to a visitation at someone's home after they've lost a precious loved one, you're familiar with this scene. You've been there before. Imagine, there's, here's, the, here's this poor person. They're sitting on a couch, and they've got friends and family around them, and they're holding hands, and they're uh, telling stories and swapping memories, and, and they go through the cycle of laughing a little bit, and then they start crying and weeping and sobbing. It's how we process through our grief. But I want you to notice, I think this is important and worthy of our reflection. Notice that when Jesus encounters Mary, he doesn't attempt to counsel her. He doesn't give her a lecture. He doesn't preach her a sermon. He doesn't even pray with her. At least it's not recorded. What he does do is what the shortest verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty five, 35, tells us Jesus did, and that is Jesus wept. He entered into her pain, into her grief, and he wept with her. I think there are times in our lives where we have a friend or a family member who experiences tragedy. They experience the loss of a dear loved one. And a lot of times, I don't know, maybe this is not true for you. I know it's true for me. But a lot of times we, we're in that scenario and we, we struggle with what to do and what to say. We want to say something perfect that's going to lift them out of their sorrow and, and fix their pain and make it go away. And the best thing that we can do is to follow Jesus' example. And just put away our words and just be fully present to the person and enter into their grief and grieve with them. As the scriptures tell us, grieve with those who grieve. That's the most important, powerful thing that can happen in a moment like that. I'll never forget the worst tragedy I've experienced thus far in my life happened in 1998. We lost a dear family member. I had a cousin that I grew up with who was uh, in a tragic car accident. 20-year-old girl, sophomore in college, and one morning she's on her commute to college. Boom. She's with Jesus. 
I'll never forget that morning. I'll never forget going to my aunt and uncle's house with all of our friends and family and church members, and we're just sobbing. And there's nothing to say. And I remember being on the couch, uncontrollably sobbing, sobbing, and I'll never forget my youth pastor came up behind me and just put his hand on my shoulder. Didn't say a word. Just put his hand on my shoulder and kept his hand on my shoulder for like would seem like half an hour. And here we are 25 years later. I still remember that hand on my shoulder. Like who remembers stuff like that? You remember it when you're in pain and when you're in sorrow and when you're grieving. You remember the people who were just present with you and sat with you and wept with you. I don't know what it is about human beings, but there's something about the way God has designed us. It's a mystery to me, and I can't explain it. But whenever someone like me that day, whenever I, whenever I lose someone close to me in such a tragic fashion, whenever we lose someone like that, there's a certain amount of grieving that has to be done. And if I'm left to myself to carry the burden of my grief by myself with no one else with me, my pain is almost unbearable. But if I've got friends and loved ones and family who will enter into my pain with me and weep with me and grieve with me, I don't know how it works, but there's a certain amount of grieving now I don't have to do. Because someone else is bearing the pain with me. And it's a wonderful thing about how God has created us. That we can grieve with those who grieve. We can share their suffering, which is what the word compassion means. Literally, compassion, shared suffering. You remember the story, the passion of the Christ. It's the suffering of the Christ. So compassion means shared suffering. And here Jesus is modeling that for us. And remember, Jesus is the word made flesh. I tell you this all the time. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Jesus perfectly reveals the Father to us. And in this moment with Mary, what does Jesus reveal to us about Father God? It's a that he reveals to us a God who dives into our pain. God is not some aloof, uncaring, distant, cold, stoic, emotionless being who's unmoved by human pain. No, he dives into our pain with us. And it's not just here with this moment with Mary. It's all throughout the scriptural record. We read about a God who experiences profound emotions. He experiences the full range of human emotions. You and I are human beings made in the image of God. And part of the image of Godness that we bear, a slice of it, is that we have emotions. And God is a God who experiences emotions. Just He's experienced every emotion we experience. And so Jesus enters into Mary's pain. And here's what makes it all the more profound. Have you ever thought about this? Jesus weeps with Mary and he knows what he's about to do. He knows in a few moments he's going to raise this young man from the dead. He knows Mary and Martha's grief is going to be extinguished just like that. And death will not have the final say. But even with that knowledge, Jesus still weeps with Mary. What do we take from that? Uh, among many other things, 
I, th- I think what we take from that is when it comes to death, when Jesus encounters the death of his friend Lazarus, he doesn't scoff at death. He doesn't poke fun at it. He doesn't dismiss it. He doesn't trivialize death. He faced it and he entered into it. So this Jesus who we love and worship and sing about, he knows what it's like to experience the death of someone that you love. It's an echo of what Isaiah said hundreds of years before. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. With this, Jesus now asks where the body of Lazarus has been laid. And they bring him to the tomb of Lazarus. And it would have been uh, this hollowed out cave in the rock and there would have been a large, heavy, cylindrical stone that they would have rolled into place to cover the entrance of the tomb. So they bring Jesus to Lazarus' tomb. And the next thing he says is, uh, roll away the stone. And it's at this point people start getting a little anxious. For practical reasons, uh, the Jews would bury someone on the day that they died. They would not wait. As soon as a person died, they would make plans to bury them. So Lazarus has been in the grave for four days. And the process of decomposition's already begun, so they're concerned about the smell, to be frank. And uh, Martha puts it like this. In fact, I like the prissy uh, Shakespearean English of the King James Version. It has Martha saying, uh, Lord, he stinketh. Jesus says, don't worry about it. Uh, Let's look at verse 41. So they took away the stone, and Jesus looked upward and said, that's that's one of Pastor Wade's favorite verses in the Bible, by the way. Lord, he stinketh. I think he's got it highlighted in his Bible. (laughs) And Jesus looked upward and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I have said this for the sake of the crowd standing here, so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth and his face wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now, I said earlier in the sermon, I said that this miracle is it's not just a cool story that John wants to tell us of something that was pretty neat that what Jesus did. John intentionally includes this in his account because it's a sign pointing us forward to something. And what is this sign pointing us to? I believe it's two things that are inextricably connected. First of all, and most importantly, the sign of the raising of Lazarus points forward to the ultimate defeat of death. It's pointing forward to what will happen on the third day after Jesus' crucifixion when Jesus is resurrected and comes out of the grave. It's pointing to the demise of death. Now, here we need to make a very important distinction. What happened to Lazarus here in this story is not exactly what happened to Jesus on the third day. Lazarus was not resurrected from the grave. Lazarus simply simply comes back to life. Lazarus was alive, then he dies, and then Jesus brings him back from death, back to life, but eventually Lazarus is going to die again. So this is a temporary staving off of death, but eventually death will claim Lazarus again for good. 
So this is not resurrection. It's merely coming back. I say merely as like, like it's nothing, but it's coming back from death, coming back to life. That's not what happened to Jesus on the third day. Jesus didn't come back to life from death. Jesus went all the way through death and came, back, came out victorious on the other side. Jesus is resurrected. That's why in the resurrection accounts in the New Testament, when we read about Jesus' glorified, resurrected body, it's really bizarre. We don't have categories for how this is operating because there's, it's like there's physical properties to his resurrected self. He's like eating fish, sharing meals, and, and Thomas is able to put his hands in the nail print. So there's physical properties. But on the other hand, there's properties to Jesus' resurrected body that are confounding to our physical world. He's like walking through walls and suddenly appearing and disappearing and all of those kinds of things. So resurrection... Um, is an entirely different thing to happen that happened to one person in history, and that's Jesus of Nazareth. And that's what all of us who are dead in Christ one day will experience is true physical resurrection. What happened to Jesus on the third day is going to happen to every one of us. So this sign of the raising of Lazarus points forward to the ultimate defeat of death. You know, death is that thing that we as modern Americans, we don't like to think about. We like to pretend death doesn't exist and that it's not going to happen to us. We're uncomfortable with our own mortality and we don't like to consider it so that when death does crash into our lives, when a loved one does pass away, it just shakes us to the core. It has us rethinking our lives. It's just not part of our normal cognizance as we go through our lives. Not only are we uncomfortable with death, our discomfort with death leads us to be discomfort, uh, uncomfortable with aging. So as Americans, we do everything we can to try to eliminate any reminder that we're aging and we're getting older. We go to the gym, we work out, we exercise, which I think is a good thing. But sometimes people go even further than that and we start doing weird things to our skin and our faces and and, 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 you know, we, we try to eliminate all of these wrinkles and, and get rid of any reminder that we're getting older, we're aging. We stretch it out and we, we, we inject it with stuff. Who knows what they inject it with and, and all that kind of stuff because we want to we wanna fight against the aging process because aging is what reminds us of that thing we don't want to think about, death. And while I think a lot of that is unhealthy, I think it does reveal a deep, instinct within the human heart that is grounded in truth and that is that death is our enemy death is not a friend it's not part of God's original created order death came about as, as a result of sin and it's not what God wants for us it's not God's perfect vision for humanity so death is an enemy but because of the victory of Christ it's an enemy that's been defeated now everybody here in this room that's a Christian you hear me say that and it's like ho-hum Yawn. Yes, death's been defeated. Yeah, great. And it's good news, but it's not new news to us. We talk about it all the time. We sing about it virtually every weekend. We sing about the, our resurrected king. We sing about it tonight. But what you have to do is you've got to put yourself back into that place of the last time you attended a funeral of someone you loved. You've got to put yourself back into that setting to see how powerful and how much good news is wrapped up in this sign that death is now defeated. Because in defeating death, Jesus did not remove death from the human experience, although eventually he will. But what he does do in the meantime is he has removed the sting of death. Yes, we still experience 
death in this overlap of the ages, the present age and the age to come. We still experience death, but because of the resurrection of Christ, he has removed the sting of death. Because we know that everyone who dies in faith dies in hope of the ultimate resurrection, that like Lazarus, we will rise again in the end. So for, for Christians who, who have joined ourselves to Jesus Christ, we can join the psalmist who said that the weeping endures for the night, joy comes with the morning. Yes, we still weep. Yes, we still grieve. We still have sorrow. But we don't sorrow as those who have no hope. Because we know hope rises again and joy comes in the morning. So the first aspect of the meaning of this sign is it points forward to the defeat of death, which is tied to the second aspect of the sign. And this is what I'm going to close with. Because Christ has defeated death, this miracle is a, is a challenge to the powers that be. Let me explain what I mean. In a moment, I want us to look at verse 45, and I want to show you something that John does here. He does something that you don't expect him to do. All the way leading up to this miracle, John has focused on Mary and Martha. And he's been showing us how sorrowful they are and how they've been grieving and how uh, disenchanted, how disillusioned they are, how confused they are. And they're hurting and they're in pain. And then John tells us about the miracle and you would expect for John to go back and pan back to Martha and Mary and show us how they react to the miracle. And show us this beautiful reunion that takes place with the two sisters and their brother. Come on, John, tell us what that was like. Instead, John doesn't say a word about it. Instead, look at what John does draw our attention to. Look at verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary had seen what Jesus and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priest and the Pharisees called a meeting of the council and said, what are we to do? This man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and destroy both our holy place and our nation. So John juxtaposes these two responses to the miracle of the raising of Lazarus. On one hand, there's a group of people who see Lazarus walk out of the grave and they believe upon Jesus as the Messiah God has sent to save and deliver us. On the other hand, there's a group of people who when they hear about Lazarus being raised, their immediate instinct is fear. And what are they afraid of? They're afraid of losing power. Instead of opening their eyes and seeing and believing that Jesus is truly the God-sent king who will deliver us and save us, they are blinded by their own self-interest. And all they can think about is that if word gets out about this, people will believe and proclaim that Jesus is God's king, that he is raised up to deliver us, and as soon as the Romans hear about it, they're going to stamp out our nation and destroy us. They're afraid of losing their power, losing their position, losing the security of their occupied nation. Fear is the engine of evil and empire. Fear 
is the weapon of those in power who abuse others for the sake of their own self-interest. The more fear we can generate, the more fear we can drive into people, the more we can control them. And this was the modus operandi of the Roman Empire. This is how they operated. This is what, this is what the Roman Empire fueled itself on, was fear, keeping the people afraid of our power and what we could do to them if they fall out of line. History tells us that there were pockets of time in the first three centuries of Christianity where early Christians were persecuted rather violently. Persecution wasn't widespread throughout the empire, and it wasn't widespread over a geographic region for a long period of time, but but there were intense seasons of persecution, usually in localized cities. And we read about Christians being brutalized and tortured and killed in some of the most barbaric ways you can imagine. It's historically well known that the Emperor Nero took Christians and impaled them on poles and lit them, uh, uh, covered them in pitch and lit them as human torches for his parties in Rome. But contrary to popular opinion, the Roman Empire did not persecute and kill Christians for religious reasons. Rome was not killing Christians because the Christians were going around telling people how to get to heaven when they die. The Romans would say, hey, talk about heaven all you want to. We don't care. Hey, if you want to make Jesus the Lord of the afterlife, great. He can be Lord of the afterlife. But this life and this world right here, we're the ones in charge. And see, that's what the Romans took issue with, is because the Christians were going around saying things like, Jesus is our king. Jesus is our one and true Lord. And our allegiance belongs to King Jesus. I say that right now in 21st century Los Angeles, and it sounds kind of benign. It just sounds like I'm saying religious things. But we've divorced it from its early Christian context when saying things like, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is king. This had profound political implications. And the Romans understood that, and they said, you better fall in lines. You have one king and one lord, and that's the emperor. That's Caesar, and that's who you bow your knee to. He's the one who you pledge your allegiance to. And so the weapon they used against the early Christians was the weapon of fear, the fear of death. Do what we say or we're going to kill you. And the Christians said, you can do whatever you want to us, but we have one king. We have one lord who is reigning right now. And that is the risen Christ. And it's to him we bow. It's to him we give our allegiance. And yeah, we still have ruling authorities and we pray for them. And we pay our taxes. But the only reason we do any of that is because our one king tells us to do so. We have one king named Jesus. He's who we serve. And the Romans say, well, we're going to kill you. And to that, the early church said, and then what? Because we're children of the resurrection. Our Lord has conquered the grave. And so we bow our allegiance to our risen, eternal king. Because no matter what you do to us, Jesus gets the final word. So you see, the, the message of the resurrection, which we're going to talk about in, what, three weeks now. So I don't want to get too far into this. But the resurrection, among many other things, it emboldened the early church to live in true faithfulness and covenantal loyalty to their heavenly king in the face of whatever threat came against them. Because Jesus' death and resurrection disarmed 
the powers and principalities. It took the sting out of every threat they had in their arsenal. The early Christians said, we're not afraid of you, and we're not afraid of death. Our king has conquered the grave. We follow Jesus no matter what the cost. And here in our comfortable society here in America, we, we don't really have to face the reality of the kind of violence, the persecution, the martyrdom that these early Christians had to face. And by the way, you have many brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who face the threat of martyrdom every day of their lives. And there are Christians around the world who get killed every day because of their allegiance to Christ. And we need to know that. We need to pray for these folks. We don't hear about it all the time. But we need to pray for them. We need to join ourselves to our brothers and sisters around the world. But the beast of empire is still present in the world today. But folks, we don't have to be afraid of the beast because the lamb has triumphed. And death has been defeated. Jesus has risen from the dead and he's now alive. And he empowers us to stand. And, and, and we say we will not bow our confidence, our hope, our trust and our lives belong to Jesus Christ. And so today, in the raising of Lazarus, Jesus' message, message to you and I is do not fear, only believe. Amen. Let's let the realities of resurrection absorb into our lives and our responses and our habits of living and our disposition towards the world. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.